Good afternoon, everyone. Good afternoon. Welcome to leg three of the podcast relay. If I knew then what I know now. Um, delighted to follow up from Claire Balding last week to introduce Krista Cullen, who is going to be joining us any moment from Nairobi. So we are going international this week as well. So Krista, welcome. Great to see you here. Uh, really looking forward to the chat this afternoon. And uh, yeah, delving into if I knew then what I know now and what that means to you. But I guess before we get into leg three, you're, at, you're in Nairobi. Um, a bit of context for that would be great. And you know, how's things there? What's going on? Why are you there? That would be great just to kind of get a bit of context from you. No, not at all. Uh, firstly, thanks for having me on. Um, yeah, so I'm I'm third generation Kenyan, uh, ironically, and as having had the luxury of playing for Great Britain uh, over sort of three Olympics, it's somewhat odd that I sort of call this place home, but it has always been home. So my grandparents after the war came out here and then uh, my parents are born and bred Kenyans. And then I was born here, went to boarding school in the UK, hence why most of my sporting endeavour was uh, fulfilled over in the UK. So when lockdown came in, I guess, much like everybody, we all rushed back to our families. So that placed me <laughs> back in Nairobi for the foreseeable. Yeah. Yeah. So three time Olympian, but sort of, you know, very much split between Kenya and, and Great Britain, I guess, in terms of that that history as well. So that must be quite, you know, just, just having, having been a really interesting upbringing and then balancing those those two different worlds as well. Yeah, I think so, Chris. But actually, I think it brought out the best in me because I had that complete break. Um, Because in some ways, when I used to come home back to Africa, albeit I still had my training to be getting on with, I was known as just Krista Cullen. I wasn't kind of a hockey player. (laughs) So I actually had that complete release as an athlete to come home where I was just known for me as a little bit of a feral child that loved being in the outdoors with the wildlife and that kind of stuff. And and I had this sort of amazing sort of balancing act, as you say, of, of these two worlds, which were completely misaligned. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I could just sort of flip between the two and, and have sort of a different uh, priority in each environment. So I think it, it helped me, I think, get a bit of a balance of life. Yeah, and that's going to be really helpful, I guess, with us exploring if if I knew then what I know now, that would be really quite interesting. And I'm keen to dive into that in a moment. But you're out, you're sort of um, uh, conservation work as well, and you're now a pilot, and there's quite, you know, there's much more to you than the Olympic gold and the Olympic bronze and and, uh, from an achievement perspective as well, I guess. Yeah, I hope so. Um, Yeah, I've sort of been, I've been really sort of, Uh, trying to as I say run these two lives in some ways and a massive part of my life or the reason actually my family uh, a couple of generations ago ended up in Africa was conservation uh, to come and help Uh, my grandfather ran a big concession up in the north of Kenya uh, for a long period of time so um, yeah conservation work is is in the family uh, very much sort of uh, been sort of my upbringing as well and I used to carry scorpions in my pocket and have a mongoose that slept at the bottom of my bed. So when I arrived at boarding school, I was somewhat different to the traditional sort of uh, 12 year old that arrives um, to, to start their, their year three then. Um, but yeah, so I've sort of really tried to pursue that now that um, my Olympics uh, or the three that I went to is now over my career in sport is over. Um, albeit domestically, I still play. Um, okay. It's now sort of very much a focus of utilizing some of the skills that I learned through sports about being part of a team and bringing different personality and showing character when the chips are down and all of those things. That is so transferable to the world of conservation because we don't hear of the good stories about the elephants being born in the conservancies that we run or things like that. We see the carcasses, <laughs> we see the negative side, we see the poaching incidents and we see all the issues that are coming up between human wildlife conflict. So you have to be resilient and there's a lot of sort of transferable skills between the two. So I took the opportunity to set up Tafauti, which in Swahili means difference. Um, it's heavily linked to my sporting endeavor as well, because one of our big things was about be the difference. And so, um, yeah, I'm sort of now pursuing this real ambitious thing about trying to make an impact in Africa. So that brings me back home, uh, relatively regularly, but I'm mainly based in the UK. Yeah. Yeah. And, and actually a nice link, not knowing that Claire was going to hand over to you, us at Planet K2 have done some work for the Tafalti, uh, cycling team that's been set up that I know you, you guys are sort of, uh, 
uh, that you're very much sort of supporting as well. So that was that was great to have sort of had that link as well. So small world, which is which is great. Absolutely. So um, we're going to dive into if I knew then what I know now, and I'm really interested. Given that variety that you've got, you're obviously learning a lot on the, along the way in many different ways. Anyway, is is there anything that comes to mind straight away in terms of stuff that you know now that you think may have been useful had you known it earlier, or sort of perspective that you've now got that you appreciate? in a different way because of experiences that you've had? Yeah, I think so. Um, we we had quite an interesting journey. And I say we, because there was sort of three or four of us that went through four Olympic games. Okay. Uh, yes, I am that old, uh, <laughs> four, four Olympic campaigns. Um, and I think the bit that kept us all grounded, those of us, uh, the four athletes that did it, um, was that we came from failure. And I think that's just a really important place to start because when right. you see people successful, um, a lot of people say it, you forget the hard times. And uh, there were a fair few of us that had been through that uh, and it wasn't pretty. Um, but then, you know, when you're, when you're at school and, and things are going well and you're being successful and you start playing uh, domestically, you start playing for your region and then you start playing, hopefully if you're lucky enough for your country through the NAGS programs, so the national age groups, mm -hmm. you seem to be on this upward trajectory um, and everything is going really well, albeit we all have little setbacks that come in, injuries or various different things uh, and you manage your journey as you see fit. Um, but you're on this up and then with the up comes the expectation. Uh, and that's quite a difficult thing to manage, especially if you're a relatively long, young athlete. Um, and the pressure of expectation, I think, is something that is very prevalent uh, mm -hmm. in today's world where uh, we're, we're very concerned about what other people perceive of us. Um, and I think that's where my learning massively was because because I was successful at school and relatively uh, capable of wielding a stick around um, there was this expectation that you're going to play internationally and you right. should represent your country and you should go to an Olympics and so in some ways on reflection Chris as I said I've done a fair few years uh, yeah. as an international hockey player you you do reflect heavily and in some ways I think the first two Olympics I went to was because people expected me to. Right. Okay. And as sad as that sounds, albeit don't don't get me wrong, I loved the journey. I worked really, really hard. I think it was some of the hardest uh, physical work I've done in a lot, you know, for to play internationally. But I also think I possibly wasn't necessarily doing it for me. Um, and. It was only when I had my little sabbatical, which I'm sure we'll go into uh, for mm -hmm. three years, did I then realise, do you know what, maybe maybe you can uh, just just go out there and do it for you. And then you it's a completely different group of emotions that you go through. Yeah, and, and that, that's actually a really sort of, you know, not that you designed it that way, but in a really interesting contrast to get kind of that finish off with the intrinsic story and perhaps the, you know, starting off with the extrinsic one being to the fore a little bit more as well and so I, I wonder did did in reflection did the pressures feel different so when when it was doing it because you were expected and doing it for others versus you know more more self-drive in there did the pressures feel different yeah I think so absolutely I think when you're doing something for you you feel more self-fulfilled okay mm -hmm. um well that's my perception and obviously on reflection, you win eight games in 13 days, you feel, you feel pretty self-fulfilled <laughs> on that journey. Of course yeah. you do. Um, but even the approach to acceptance on return, all of those sort of things, which we'll go into more detail with. But I think you're exactly right. Um, the pressure of expectation or the extrinsic value, as you say, that you gain um, sort of feeding off others makes you feel that self-worth. Mm -hmm. um and and it's very it's a very natural human trait to yeah. feel more self-worth when other people are proud of your achievements yeah. and i hope it's obvious but I, I i like to think i'm relatively humble with what i've been lucky enough to be a part of um but it was really important to me that uh you know my peers at school uh that i was successful and things like that just because of that expectation and so you're not in my opinion i wasn't necessarily on reflection doing it for the right reasons um 
albeit it was a great journey I loved it but it wasn't I, I think on reflection that sort of that sort of self-preservation side I think I think could have could have helped me possibly yeah I, and I think from the reflection point of view it's, it's interesting that growth of that you know there's there's meaning to us in terms of what others perceive of us but ultimately is that as useful for us that then you know the belief that we have about ourselves and you know are we are we proud of how we've gone about stuff as well because it's it's always a really interesting balance because I think sometimes people feel guilty for wanting to please others and mm. sort of not being totally self-focused which, which you know does seem to suppress a very natural need as well was was there a change before the retirement for you were you becoming more self-focused do you think prior to retirement the original retirement yeah, the uh, original yes. retirement retirement number <laughs> yes. one yeah. yeah a retirement number one post London um, well, it's difficult. It's it's an interesting conversation because as athletes, we talk about it a lot about how selfish we have to be, um, you know, to make sure that we are eating right, physically in the right shape, you know, psychologically um, ready to take on whatever it is we're taking on, and it is a selfish state that you're in. But you're constantly um, grading yourself, obviously, against your peers and against sort of your reflection on society. I think that's just a very natural thing, um, you know, and we do as athletes feel that we are graded against how successful we're being. And that's not, that's athletes, but that's also people in the world of business, which I now operate in quite heavily, you know, how, what our output is or our turnover or our profits, we're definitely sort of thinking, oh, we're on the up here. And therefore we feel a lot more self-fulfilled or self-worth because of, well, possibly the fact we're on the footsie or whatever it may be. Yeah. yeah. And that's just our different environments and how we relate to it. Um, so within sport, we're sort of constantly striving and constantly um, grading ourselves. But if we are more concerned about, you know, what other people are thinking and the fact you have to get selected and your name has to be on that team sheet, then I don't think you're necessarily um, being as honest with yourself as to the reasons why you get out of bed every morning to go and do it. And I think only when, during my original first retirement, did I actually reflect and think, do you know what? I'm not sure I did all that for me right. enough. Mm -hmm. um, you know, yes, I was proud of what I was lucky enough to achieve uh, through that. But at the same time, I think there was just that little bit of um, resentment that I didn't just go, do you know what? I'm just gonna have a crack at this and just go for it, which was very much my approach uh, post-retirement when I came back for Rio. Yeah, and it's just, you know, there's, there's there's a huge amount written around motivation, and that's always really interesting. And certainly, when it comes to the highest level in sport, it's really interesting about where people's drivers come from. So competition with self versus competition with other people. And mm -hmm. you know, I was watching a couple of videos, and you sort of proudly claim you're a very competitive person, which was a very happy thing. And I'm just wondering where where do you reflect that that balance predominantly was? Was it competition with self or competition with others? Because I think that sometimes get, gets mixed up as well hmm. in, you know, in the, the personal drivers. Would, would you go a balance between the two or do you sort of a dominance of one over the other? I, I would definitely say it's a balance between the two. If you're not competing with yourself to constantly strive to be better, um, then I, I don't think an elite program is the right one for you yeah. <laughs> because we're like lab rats. I mean, you know, as well as anyone, Chris, you know, every single bit of data that they can collate on us, yeah. we know almost all the detail around our lactates are all sorts of different things. Um, you know, so we, we are very self-aware of where our bodies are at. And I do think there's those huge advancements in science now so that, so that we do have the privilege of that knowledge. Mm. So whether that's how much we lift in the gym or how far, we are or what our endurance base is you know we have to keep striving to want to improve that especially uh with the little carrot dangling which is your little olympics every four years you know that's literally like oh my god i have to be at peak so there's a balance of that element uh and yes you pointed it out right i'm i'm almost competitive beyond my years mainly because i had an older brother who was a lot faster a lot right. stronger a lot better at most things than me so i had to learn a way uh to try and beat him but you then have the other side, which is obviously competing with your peers and competition day. Mm -hmm. um, and the pressure, the pressure of expectation, which we've already discussed extensively around, you know, what people perceive of you. And then when you're actually in the zone of performance, mm -hmm. I think they're two very different things. And I think the performance zone, thankfully for me, I mean, I, I could sometimes train terribly in training and just be awful. But on the big occasion, uh, the fact that 
it was a huge occasion and competition and all of those things, I would find a way mm -hmm. <laughs> to, to make sure that I brought my A game. Yeah. Uh, and I thrived in that environment. Um, and I think that's a very unique thing as an athlete. You know, some people are really good at training and then in a high pressured environment don't necessarily fulfill yeah. their yeah. potential. Uh, and I was kind of, thankfully <laughs> for, for me, the other way around, like sometimes yeah. I could train terribly um, but I also had the self-confidence over the journey that I did over a number of years that I knew when it came down to the push, um, I would be okay. And I would be able to pull my weight and be the cog in the wheel that my team needed. Yeah. Um, and so that competitive spirit, I think has to be a balance of the two, uh, both, you know, within you being competitive with yourself, but ultimately, uh, on the occasion, you have to be able to deliver because your team needs you. Yeah, yeah, and 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 I think actually it's a fascinating switch between preparing and then performing, and just that sense of you know actually a lot of the time in preparation we're asking, what if is it going to be good enough? You know, and, and there's a lot of that you know the data that you're saying is coming in, and you're kind of hoping that's all going in the right direction. I'm not quite sure why, as the psychologist, I ended up taking more urine early morning urine measures than the physiologist. But anyway, this is you know this is how it quickly crumbled. Um, <laughs> Perks of the job. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. They said it was for me to be able to read the mood of the people first thing in the morning. Or so I, I, I don't believe it, but um, um, but that's really interesting. That kind of questioning in preparation, but then you actually get into the game, and it's well, we're here now. I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna play with what's un unraveling in front of me. And start yeah. to take control of stuff and there's an interesting switch there as well i wonder if for you i guess in the back line as well and that position and your ability to sort of you know appraise what's going on and feel that you're in control much more now i wonder if that shifted for you a lot when you stepped over the white line yeah i think so you know i'm not somebody my personality traits are not somebody that's data driven massively mm -hmm. so yeah. the fact that you know how many times i touched the ball and and all of those things or what my positive outcomes were or all of those things you know i think there are personalities who get are almost devil in the detail and they get yeah. so stuck in it um and it's a fine balancing act i think as a coach or or a manager or whatever it may be to try and make sure you're giving you're fulfilling the athlete with enough, enough information without that kind of overload of them feeling like they're governed by yeah, data yeah. and by numbers. Um, and thankfully, my response to it normally is, um, okay, I might have touched the ball that many times, but you know, did we win? Did we score goals? Did I score? Was I lucky enough to be on the score? Do you know, all of those sort of things were yeah, kind of yeah. more how I sort of was driven. Um, but that's learning yourself as well. And I, But I do think there's the luxury of data that we have now, but yeah. I do think it has a negative um, side to it too with complete overload into athletes and then they're kind of as you say governed by it mm. and then it can not necessarily pull out the best in them because you're exactly right Chris you cross that white line and it's dog eat dog it's you yeah. against you know it's 11 v 11 they may be world number one and we may be world number seven um but it's 11 players on the field um and sometimes you need that sort of cool calm collected kind of personality who's in the utmost of pressured situations and you kind of just take a deep breath and you go we're going to be okay we've got wave upon wave of Dutch attack coming at us yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Especially as you as you know it was but I knew that you know we had we were okay we were going to be fine and you just need that little bit of you know that little bit of a, a breather sometimes just be like okay just consolidate uh, yeah. we're going to be all right here yeah, and it's, it's interesting you're talking about the data and the balance and whether the data is controlling you or you're controlling the data. And, so, you know, that, and that's a really interesting one from a business perspective as well, because people have so much of the kind of targets and, you know, we can kind of get so, so sort of um, obsessed with the data not being right that we forget that we're the people doing the things that are controlling it. And that, you know, and that's that, that you know, in the, in the match playing situation, that's critical, isn't it? Well, you can't keep going, oh no, my stats are terrible at that. So I yeah. mustn't try that because we have to be impulsive. And yeah. if it's the right decision, we have to feel empowered enough to be able to take the plunge. And I think that's the environment that we create, whether that's you know on the sports field or in the business environment, where we create this, this freedom of educated risk. Mm. <laughs> because we have to empower people to be allowed to go for it. Yeah. Um, you know, why do we have employees? Why do we 
put a team together as a coach we can't do it ourselves yeah, yeah. Do you know what I mean so we have to um give them the environment which is one of the things I think we have huge advancements for uh post 2012 and in the build-up to 2016 where we gave an environment where people were allowed to make mistakes and I know mm -hmm. that's easy in sport because they're short-lived and they're emotion-driven normally. Yeah. Um, whereas in business, they can be pretty crucial. Um, mm -hmm. But if you can create this environment where people feel safe to sort of take a few risks and, and learn the hard way, because <laughs> it hurts, um, you know, then, then they're willing to sort of um, try things even in uh, pressured environments, because that's those kind of little moments of magic are, are the game changers at the elite level. Uh, and there can be the difference between, you know, hitting the post and not and getting it in yeah. and scoring. And, you know, that that's the, those those flair players. We need to empower them or people within the group, empower them to be able to to, to take those risks and yeah. feel that they can. Yeah. And the, and the safety thing. So, you know, psychological safety is flying around loads at the moment. But, there, you know, there's a concept of just cultures as well, which is equally valuable you know there is that concept that if we assume that people are turning up with positive intent mistakes are as a result of trying to do what you know the best that you could do there's there's, yeah. there's not many sort of people with guerrilla tactics turning up to kind of go right well I'm, I'm going to screw up deliberately here you know and, yeah. and and that and that's the bit around the safety the freedom to kind of go we know that you're coming with positive intent and I guess that's a really interesting part of part two so after retirement number one that kind of you been invited back in and sort you know but going in in the knowledge that was full of positive intent um and, and that must have been quite inter an interesting period given how important the perception of other people of you was uh, but also your desire to go and test yourself that must have been sort of a interesting phase back in yeah and i think i didn't take the decision lightly as well right. and that's yes. that's i think a very important point through all of this and you know, so just for context, I uh, retired after 2012, mm -hmm. um, did three years back in Africa working in security and became a pilot and worked in airline surveillance for wildlife protection as my sort of bit on the side wanting to get into conservation. Uh, and then one fateful day on an April, got a phone call from the head coach who I hadn't spoken to for three years and I definitely thought was pocket dialing me. <laughs> um, and he said, you know, I'd like you to consider coming back of which I was like are you crazy I haven't committed to four years I know what an elite program looks like albeit obviously the changes over 16 years had been quite advanced into a full-time program and I immediately was concerned about the girls who had filled my boots uh for the three years um because I thought gosh if I say yes here their noses rightfully they're going to feel threatened. We're all threatened in an yeah. elite environment all the time um, by, you know, competition or whatever it may be. But, you know, that sort of um, that security of knowing that you're a dominant right defender, because I happen to be where I played to suddenly be sort of feel like, you know, you've been kneecapped because a, an experienced player has been given the opportunity to come back. Um, so it took me sort of a good six months to deliberate uh, whether I was going to or not. And thankfully, the girls had to qualify for Rio in that period. Yeah. So I took a vested interest <laughs> suddenly in how they were getting on. And I could immediately see, Chris, that this team, this team had grit. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and I think that is such an important thing or skill or, or, or attribute to have. Uh, no mm -hmm. matter what environment, because you can have the chips down and still not feel beaten and just keep coming back. And that's what this team had in abundance. Yeah. Um, and it's an attribute that I really value. And I was like, OK, I need to make this group better. <laughs> yeah. So I can't just sort of arrive and think, you know, I'm the old bird coming back and that's enough. Mm -hmm. I need to get myself in the best shape possible and I need to manage my transition back in. So in doing that, you know, I needed to have a conversation with the coach and I said to him, right, you tell the girls what happened. Uh, it's not me thinking I'm good enough at this mm -hmm. late stage to rejoin. It's you saying you would like me to trial uh, on no funding to come back, join the program of 31 and try and get myself in the 16. So that the risk was still on me and the other girls didn't feel as threatened. Uh, and that was really important to me because uh, the way I was accepted back would be fundamental on, in whether I was gonna be successful or not. So yeah. that had to be managed. Yeah, I, 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 lo I love that contrast between 
coming back and, and, and having that sense, I have to earn the right and I have to demonstrate the added value rather than the early bit you're sort of saying, you know, there was an expectation. Well, of course, you're going to do this. Of course, you're going to play. Of course, that's going to be the next step. And, and, and that's a really interesting contrast to kind of, you know, taking the mantle versus earning the right and absolutely knowing that it cannot be without any doubt that you're the right person to have in there. That must have felt quite a, quite a difference. Yeah, and then, you know, I, I say that as if I was really assertive mm-hmm. and that's not the truth. Right. Uh, the, the truth is I had massive self-doubt. I had moments where I thought, gosh, I haven't held a hockey stick in three years. I might be like incapable of doing what I was known for doing, mm-hmm. which is also like that whole, you know, self-fulfillment thing coming back thinking, gosh, what happens if I don't get my name on that team sheet and I don't go to Rio? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, my life's gone full circle. I've gone back to UK from Kenya again, and I've gone to try and commit to a full-time program. And there's a massive likelihood, 31 athletes training full-time, 16 get picked, just short of half miss out. Mm-hmm. There's a huge likelihood. And I was joining as the 32nd athlete, a massive likelihood that I might not be one of them. And that's okay. Yeah. But that's yeah. still a knock to your confidence. Um, and you're just as much risk as everyone else. So whilst I say it was assertive, and I wanted to go there, and I wanted to prove that I was good enough, and I needed to earn the right, because that absolutely is the truth. But it also is fair to say that there were times when I drove into Bishop Abbey, and I thought to myself, Oh, my God, Chris, what are you doing? Hmm. Like, what are you doing? You are risking so much. You've got a bronze medal, you've gone to two Olympics you've already achieved quite a lot, like, and now you're going to risk all of that again. Um, But I thought, you'll never know. So have a crack, have a crack at it and do it for you and see what happens. Yeah. Yeah. Now on reflection, I said, yes. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's great. And and, there's, there's so much in there around the relationship with possible failure. And something we talked about with Catherine Granger in, in sort of the first leg of the relay as well. But that's, that's really interesting because, you know, I'll, I'll often talk to people about whether it's with the data or whether it's with an outcome. You know, you could make the failure happen if you wanted to. You could you could interact with everyone in such a way that you'd be guaranteed not to make the cut. But we walk around all the time fearing the thing that actually we've got much more control of than is kind of trying to control us. So it's then that self-doubt is used to kind of go, well, what am I going to do about it? And that feels like you've got that high performance paradox of kind of having the doubt, but it ultimately being a useful energy for you rather than a constant source of distraction. Yeah, but I think it's how you channel it, Chris. I think it's very natural for people to feel a whole host of emotions uh, in every environment. And the one currently is is just as valuable. Um, You know, I think you're up, you're down, you're in. Suddenly you're like, oh, am I on the cusp? You know, that's that's the realistic environment of a roller coaster ride for an elite athlete. And I think that's also really important that we that you're realist, you just you you have those conversations to say, sometimes I just feel a bit flat, sometimes I'm on it, sometimes I'm just not. And that added to the fact that you're now suddenly thrown back in with this team who I didn't know a large majority of them Mm -hmm. you know I went round this is quite embarrassing but I went round the group introducing myself to all the players that I didn't know and I introduced myself to somebody and they went and she she went hi yeah I'm Amber and I'm the videographer and I introduced myself because she was a player so you know the reality is you're coming into an environment that used to be so comfortable yeah. And suddenly it's very uncomfortable and every eye, just like when Kath returned, she was no different. I'm sure every eye is on you to see whether you're, you know, going to contend. That's immediately everyone's, everyone's sort of uh, eyeballing you to make sure that, that they see what, what the threat is and assessing it. Yeah. And that's yeah. natural. And did, did that help you learn stuff about yourself in terms of actually being under that kind of scrutiny in a different way? Was, was, was there things that you did to manage that and handle that that have been useful for you since? Was, was there anything along those lines that got you through that? I think there was an appreciation that it was coming. <laughs> so I knew that, you know, how, so I came straight back into fitness testing, which is pretty brutal um, straight off the bat. So we talk about data um, and immediately my data was on show to sort of say, listen, is she at least in shape? like to contend and I knew that was going to be the scrutiny I was going to be under straight away so I um I managed what I could manage which was to be in the best shape of my life (laughs) so I because I wanted the girls to know I was serious you know there's one thing getting asked to come back 
and as we've just spoken about very much another earning the right to be back yeah yeah uh, and I had to do the latter uh the first bit I got my toe through the door but there was no guarantees as I said so I literally trained my heart out so even though I probably wasn't going to be that coordinated with a hockey stick for a few months until I got back in the groove I knew that physically I would challenge anybody to be able to do what I needed to do so um I came back in better shape than I was pre-London so I was like right I want the girls to know I'm serious and I want them to look at my stats and go holy moly (laughs) she's in she's in this and she's genuinely here to contend and that set a precedence immediately because it showed how serious I was. And yeah. I think um, that immediately, in some way, gets some form of respect from those girls who I hadn't had the privilege of playing alongside yet. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 with, and with that different scrutiny, forensic approach, I guess, you know, in, in the second half, if you look back and you think about preparing to play in your first two Olympics and the player that you were and how you were on, on the pitch as well, is, do, do you think there would have been a slightly different experience had you felt you'd have earned the right a bit more for those um for those two olympics do you think there'd have been a different uh small percentage to your game in some way does it does it feel like you know that that the 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 second iteration of you would have would have had some great stuff to offer the first iteration yeah i think i just would have put less pressure on myself right uh, okay. you know the second look for, for for rio i was just like do you know what i'm going out here and i'm just going to give it all the energy i've got and just show show everybody what I can do and I didn't feel the pressure of the world on my shoulders right. um but I was for the first two I was quite a dominant player in the squad uh, and I'd always been there and do you know what I mean it was sort of like you were assertive and you were sure of your position suddenly I was almost taken out of my comfort zone because come Rio I wasn't the dominant player that had always been picked in the build-up and had all those guarantees and and so I didn't necessarily feel as pressured in Rio because mm-hmm. uh, yes, I was an experienced player. Yes. I'd been to two Olympics before and all those things, but you know, I just, I had had a 10 month run in and I was giving it a crack and I was finally doing it for me. Yeah. Um, which is a very different approach uh, to what I'd done previously. Um, and I think for my personality, if I knew that I could have done it in that way and succeeded in the way I did, Mm-hmm. possibly I would have um, had a few tweaks and changes to how I would have approached certain things should I say um, in the build-up to both the Beijing Olympics and and the London ones yeah yeah and, and that, that that's really it's really interesting as well that difference between demanding that you play a certain way because of what's expected of you versus finding out how good you can be this time in this situation and sort of you know having the freedom to discover rather than the demand to deliver a certain thing and that subtle and difference is important absolutely chris and to that point i think um the transition that we were in through the three olympics that i played in was quite extreme in that we have the same coaching staff uh, primarily uh, throughout the whole thing and I think through that journey there was a lot of trust and empowerment onto the players and with that obviously when you've played with players for a long period of time you start to get to know their personalities and where they do and don't deliver and then can sort of build a team that that you know given the freedom can fulfill it mm-hmm. and can go for it and that really appealed to my personality because I I'm sure you've worked out by now I'm not a massive fan of being told what to do I would Mm -hmm. rather show me how to do it and let me try and I'll learn through failure until I will drill it so many times because I've got that sort of obsessive side to my personality which is like I'll practice and practice and practice which is why probably I'm a drag flicker. Uh, You know you do 150 drag flicks a day because you just got to keep doing it for that one chance to possibly be called upon in an opportune moment. And so that freedom is perfect for me. An athlete that didn't suit a full-time program, uh, which is possibly the reason I retired the first 
time because mm-hmm. I didn't think I could do another four years of an elite full-time program because I, I enjoyed working. I enjoyed distractions out of hockey. I enjoyed, I got a completely separate friendship group to hockey environment. And, and I'm a little left field. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm quite an independent soul and I quite like doing my own thing. I don't really like routine. So it was a real difficult environment because I didn't massively thrive in a full-time environment because I'm a non-conformist in a conformist yep. environment. And that's quite an interesting issue because I'm, I'm left field. And yeah. so it doesn't always suit me. Uh, and that's okay to be a bit different, but it just needs managing. Um, and that freedom element that our last Olympics or 2016 Olympics offered enabled me to thrive more because I felt empowered to make decisions. And I know that I was able to sort of help other teammates do the same thing. And I think that then made us all feel uh, that we could take that educated risk from training into the performance environment. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah, and very much speak, speaks to the sort of hashtag that, that you as a team had, which was be the difference. And one of those was the important factors that were there for it, you know, be the difference by the decisions that you make, the choices that you make by how you choose to show up. And, you know, there, there's, there's a great sense of positive challenge in that, isn't there, in terms of well, you've earned the right to be the difference, so be it. And yeah. that feels really, really liberating, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. And then the unity, I think mm-hmm. uh, it was the team had, was so committed both through the culture that we adopted and created uh, and we owned the process. It was not that sort of military, you yeah. will do this and you do. And I've been in teams that have had exactly that, which is you will feel inspired. You will do this. You will. And you're like, no, we didn't. We didn't come up with it. So don't tell us how or what, like give us the means. Mm-hmm. So we're sitting in a room, you know, thrashing it out. And we came up with those statements and each one, as I, I've used the one be the difference, because that's the one that really resonated with me. But inspire the future. We are one team. We are winners. There was a number of different things that, you know, all the members of the squad felt represented by. And so you now create an environment where it's not just up to the coaching staff or the managerial staff in, a, in, in the corporate industry to demand more. Mm-hmm. It comes from within. And that is a very special equilibrium to be able to get. Uh, and it's very unique. And I've never been in a team where it's been so, uh, so shared, should yes. I say? So everybody, no matter the number of caps you have or whatever, is able to pick up on somebody's inefficiency in a certain area or somebody's just looking a bit blue and a bit non-normal to their personality or all of these little things. And now you've got 31 people recognizing things rather than it going, "Mm, coach's problem, not our problem. Yeah. And when you put the coaches coaches and the support staff in with that as well, so it's all of you in that kind of flat structure, holding each other to account to play their part. That's again, you know, from a business perspective, flatten the hierarchy everyone whatever their position has a role to play in picking stuff up leading by example following the the ethos the ethos and you know that that feels like there was a lot of that total team piece as well yeah but it's underpinned by respect mm. i think chris and that's you know respecting everybody for their individuality or wherever it may be and i think that, that, that analogy that you used was perfect. You know, you don't go out to make a mistake. You make mistakes because you're trying t- mm. to be the best version of yourself. And we're no different to everybody else. Sometimes it does go Pete Tong. Like it's not always going to be <laughs> on song, albeit in your mind, you're thinking, yeah, that pass was absolutely pinpoint, going to nail it. And then you pass it straight to the center forward at the top of the circle and they have a swack at your goal. Trust me, I've done it. Like that. <laughs> it's very normal to be trying to do things that possibly were the right decision just poor execution and that happens on the top stage as it happens at grassroots it it happens but that ability to know what to say to a fellow peer or colleague or player uh, in the heat of the moment when they're under pressure because you've built that relationship and you've invested time in each other um, and that's where there was a lot of um, valuable time spent in that sort of depth of understanding of people critiquing people's personalities and working with them. How do I get the best out of you? What do I say? How do I, because there is those moments and we all feel them when the chips are down and you're thinking, oh my God, I don't know how we're going to survive this. Yeah. You know, when you turn and you look at Kate Richardson Walsh's eyes and I see the whites of her eyes and her nostrils flaring (laughs) in the final against the Dutchies. And I just, I knew all I had to say, albeit my lungs felt like they were dropping out my body. And I just had to say to her, Kate, don't worry, we've got this. We're in this together. It's fine. And immediately I knew that was just was settling for a fellow peer. 
Mm. And you just invest the time because you understand each other and you know, and that's the luxury of playing a long time together. But if you invest the time in, in your colleagues and stuff, you start to realize how do you make them tick or how do I help them? Albeit I need to deliver, but I also need my teammates around me to deliver. Otherwise uh, I might as well be um, sitting on the sideline with a pina colada because it ain't going to help. Yeah. Yeah. And you scored in the final. Um, and, and it just makes me wonder, does, does that goal have a different sort of place for all the other goals that you scored, given it was in the final? Or was it actually because it was part of this holistic performance? It, you know, it wasn't really a goal like some other goals were. I, I'm really interested just how you reflect on that contribution. Well, the irony of the question is quite hilarious because it's the only it's the only outfield goal I ever scored for my mm. country. Okay. Um, so and what I was doing there <laughs> in the circle as a right defender to this day, I think still gives Danny cold sweats um, because we're all a product of the environment in which we train um, and I'm no different to everybody else. Um, at no, under no circumstances, when you advance on the left, should you also advance on the right? We all know that. We watch football. Yeah. Uh, you know, you've got to have cover. Everyone's like, cover, cover, you know, protect the middle, all that sort of stuff. That's standard, no matter which sport you're talking about, right? This whole gaining ground vibe. Yeah. yeah. And Giselle Ainsley was was um, was advancing down the left-hand flank. And I should no way, under any circumstances, had also been advancing on the right. I left Kate on her own, probably marking two players. Stupid decision, but we were 2-1 down. And the duchies were on the up and I thought, you know what, there's a space, so I'm going to go for it. And there's this dogged ball that took forever to get to me because it took a deflection, bounced across the front of me. And whenever I coach kids, which we all do a lot now, mm-hmm. you say, don't ever hit a ball coming left to right across your body first time. <laughs> so what did I do? Did it hit the ball first time, completely misconnected and somehow Sombrook managed to let it sort of dribble underneath her right pad and you know what I'll take it every day of the week um because that put us 2-2 and got our tails up again and uh enabled us to start fighting to get ourselves back into that game which was fundamental to putting hockey back on the map yeah and and in in the context of that you were short corner typically scoring a lot of goals in that in there as well so I'd only ever scored (laughs) only ever scored corners um I don't tend to get into the circle when I do I tend to get a nosebleed so it's probably safer that I don't go near them unless I'm defending them um but on this occasion uh for some reason uh I found myself there and thankfully took the opportunity and it you know, we were able to to get ourselves back on level peg, which, you know, in the context of pressure and all the things we've spoken yeah, about. Yeah. And when the shift uh, comes and it just gets you back on it and uh, we suddenly found ourselves back in the game. Yeah. And I think that was the fa- that was a fascinating thing from the final was it, it you know, it, it looked like it was going to be really hard to beat you. It, so whatever was happening, there, there, there was always just that nudge back or that nudge ahead. And it was really interesting that that, that looks like it was pretty demoralising to play against in as much as, well, every time something happened, well, we're just going to go again. We're going to stay there. And the grit you mentioned earlier, without mm-hmm. having been that togetherness, but someone's just said there was a doc, Kenny Dalglish documentary where we're in this together as well was the phrase that came out. If, if, it feels like there was the equal pride in being grittily resistant to what the onslaught was going to be as well as sort of, enjoying sort of you know changing the narrative and changing the story it feels like there was a good balance there yeah i think so uh you know you're you're obviously your tails are up anyway because mm. you've won seven matches yeah, uh, yeah and we were definitely proving what we'd all said because we all said you know we're here to contend for a gold medal and and <laughs> the media practically laughed at us because they were like you're seventh in the world you guys crazy um and we knew that we had it within us. Uh, it was just about how you start your tournament and obviously playing the Aussies first off the bat, it was like, yeah, we need yeah. to make a, a statement here. Uh, Australia, Great Britain, you know it, no matter what the sport, it's always gonna be uh, an interesting uh, showcase. And yeah, I, little one percenters, we didn't mm-hmm. march in the opening ceremony. They chose to march. Uh, yeah. We were playing the next day, less than 24 hours to prepare. You know, we need to fuel our bodies right, get get our hydration right. Um, you know, it's those little tiny percentages. We hear it so much in sport. Yeah. The one percenters that can just make such a difference. And the way we start a tournament is fundamental to the success or the journey or the trajectory that we end up on. So we started out really hard and beat world number two at the start of our tournament. And that set the stall. And then, as you say, you know, the we in, we're in this together thing is 
do you know what? If my teammate missed a tackle, I would literally throw my body in the way to try and cover them. Yes, it's not my job, but I don't care. You make the right decision to cover your teammate. And I think that's what won people's hearts. Yeah. I think that's what everybody remembers about Rio when, you know, still unbelievably, it's it's remembered for for the dogged British defence mm-hmm. and the togetherness and the unity that that really special squad had. Um, and I think, yes, it was a special moment in time and, you know, life moves on and all of those sort of things. But um, that is what people hold on to. And what is very special about being British is that we're able to sort of grind out this thing where if you were a statistician, getting back to the data point, yeah, yeah, under no circumstances should we have won that game. Under no circumstances. You need a bit of lady luck on your side. They hit the posts, you know, yeah. those sort of things. They missed, they missed the penalty stroke in a game. Marsha Palman would never miss a penalty stroke. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but pressure is an amazing thing. And when she missed that penalty stroke, I remember turning to Maddie Hinch, who's my roommate and obviously in goal, and I just said to her, mate, we've got this. She's broken, psychologically broken. We're in this. And, you know, the Dutchies were, were just, we were their nemesis team. Yeah. So when we met them in the final, it was like, it doesn't matter that it's the Dutch. You know, they've been really struggling against us historically in the last two or three years. So if we stick together and we do our jobs, we're definitely in this. Uh, albeit the chips were against us on numerous occasions, but we managed to rally around and, and find yeah. our way back. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and, and so, you know, just, just such, the campaign was the thing. I think that was so brilliant. The, the, the final finished it off superbly. Well, it was it was the the campaign as well. And we we could carry on, but I'm mindful of time and, and sort of taking up a lot of yours already. I'm just, I'm just thinking, you know, as we've talked and if we reflect back on the question, if I knew then what I know now, is 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 there anything that kind of is sort of you know coming to mind for you in terms of well, actually, here, here's something that I really know now. That, that I valued that, you know, if I'd have known it then it would have added in or sort of something that I've learned as a result of those experiences that I really know now and I'm going to pay forward. Is, is, are there any conclusions for you, I guess, from the conversation? Well, I think the, the conversation was mainly underpinned by the fact that, you know, sometimes you, you do things for others rather than yourself mm-hmm. at times and sometimes sort of just going for it just because you think it's the right thing to do. And I think to build on that point is around not being afraid to be an opportunist Okay. Um, I think there's a lot of value in that. And I'm the epitome of an opportunist um, because you don't often get a carrot dangled in front of you 10 months out of an Olympics um, as somebody who's been involved in a lot of Olympic campaigns. It was it was a relatively unique um, experience uh, and opportunity. And I think um, I was filled with Mm self-doubt and that's okay. Um, you know, that's just because that's an emotion that is natural to feel um, when you get the opportunity because you're putting your neck on the block again and it's daunting to do that and that's okay. Yeah. Um, But it just needed a little bit, you know, a little bit of time, a little bit of pragmatism, a little bit of, okay, how do I want to approach this uh, sort of a deep breath and then kind of go, right, (laughs) I'm going to give this a go. And so that's what I I did and and thankfully it worked out and it doesn't always trust me it doesn't always but sometimes you can be really lucky and it can really work out and so my learning is utilizing that uh, opportunity to now try and take that into the charity sector of what what I'm trying to do now which is the other passion and you know being ballsy and taking chances and going do you know what so many people do a lot of talking I want to make the impact so I'm just going to give it a go. And if I fail, I'll go down fighting. Um, and I'll be more respectful of giving it a chance and trying than sitting there going, I wish I should have, or I could have, or I should have tried harder. I'd rather fail. But that might be because I'm come from failure, which is linking right to the start. You know, I failed before. I can fail again. You pick yourself up and you move on. And I think that's that's the message. It's sometimes in life, we get an a multitude of opportunities and weigh them up but sometimes your gut instinct can be right yeah yeah and it's really powerful for me listen is that yeah just thinking the presence of doubt doesn't stop the desire to take the opportunity yeah, and and you know they don't need to work in opposition they can actually be really you know really powerful combination you've got the healthy paranoia with the huge desire yeah. <laughs> the mix of that is kind of quite a nice one just a good mix hopefully yes 
Yeah. Well, you know, if you tip one way or the other, it might be slightly uncomfortable for a while or sort of slightly too euphoric. But, you know, um, mm. if you get the mix right, I think I think they work brilliantly together. So that's uh, great, great reflection. So so thank you. That's, that's, that's inspiring. And certainly if um, folks are interested, I guess, into Fauti and finding out what you're doing, that, that that's the passion at the moment where the risks are being taken freely to make an impact. Yeah, just to try, hey, I'd rather go down fighting, yeah. as I said, and, and, you know, there's, there's such a desperate need all over the world currently, but um, also where I'm lucky enough to call home and, and mm -hmm. I know that I can make small changes uh, in that can really impact communities and wildlife. And so uh, that's what kind of gets me out of bed in the morning nowadays to just try and just try and make a difference. Oh, fantastic. Well, all the best with that. And that, that, that's fantastic to know that there's the, the passion is being sort of really focused in that direction as well now as well. So I guess, I guess as we're coming to the end, it's time for the baton handover. So I'm, I'm curious to find out who's on leg four. Um, so uh, who are we going to be talking to next week? Who's going to be reflecting on that uh, point of if I knew then what I know now? So I'm firmly handing over the baton to um, Kelly Brown. Oh. who ha is an international rugby player for mm -hmm. Scotland, or was, uh, and Saracens and captains, actually, um, both of those. And he's had his own really, really special journey. I won't ruin it for him, um, but in his own ways, has had some struggles and also um, worked really hard and obviously represented at, at the elite level of sport. And I'm sure we'll have a really, really special message around how he's had some of the, the battles that he's overcome and, and some of the things. So I'm sure he'll come up with a really cool anecdote around uh, around the sort of title part of all of this. So, um, yeah, I'm sure he'll do a great job. So Kelly, Kelly will be with you next week, Chris. Excellent. Thank you very much for that. So we've gone from rowing and sports governance to sport broadcasting to hockey and conservation to rugby and then we'll see what other what else is in the mix yeah, so it's, uh, i'll leave it as a yeah i'll leave him to be able to sort of uh yeah take take the helm there yeah fantastic well, really that's a great that's a great handover so thank you very much for that and i will avoid doing a scottish accent to cause any offense throughout, throughout the process as well so uh, uh that's great so um we'll we'll get that all set up and ready for everyone to tune into that next week um krista it's been an absolute delight thank you so much for your time and joining us um from kenya um stay safe out there hope everything is uh, gonna sort of be fulfilled that you're looking to achieve while you're out there and uh, i guess if anyone's got anything look on the tafauti website if they want to get involved and understand what you're doing more as well is there anything just yeah any advice on that that you, you want to give yeah um www.tafauti.org uh, if you want to have some information about the um about what what i do or, or what my team and i do uh, and then of course if anybody wants to reach out to me there's numerous different channels that you can go down uh, if there's anything sort of intricate i'm i'm all ears as to ways we can all improve ourselves so any which way that i can help anybody achieve that um, especially in the current climate i'm uh, willing to help in any way i can Fantastic. Well, thank you huge for your time. All the best with that. And uh, if you need anything from us in return as well, we're here to help. So uh, uh, enjoy you. the rest of the day. Have a great weekend and uh, we'll see everyone next week. Thanks very much. Take care. All right. Cheers. Bye bye.